0: Testing 123, testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode The Essay That Started It All. Today is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. Once again, I am in the midst of my effort to put out a new podcast every day, at least every weekday, during the present emergency of the worldwide coronavirus pandemic. Many of my listeners are having to shelter at home for an extended period, and it is my goal to help in any way I can to do my bit for the effort, to help those sheltering at home by producing a new podcast every weekday. I am currently in my fifth week of producing such podcasts. Now, what do I mean by the title of today's podcast, The Essay That Started It All? Well, the essay I'm referring to is not an essay on the church's website. It is an essay that I wrote a number of years ago, prior to beginning this podcast. It is an essay I wrote dealing with the Adam-God theory, and specifically how it is that the LDS Church continues to be something less than transparent in dealing with the issue of the Adam-God theory, which was a doctrine at the time, the Adam-God doctrine, taught by the second president and prophet of the LDS Church, Brigham Young. That essay went up, as I say, a number of years ago on a blog site. It had a little bit of popularity for a brief period of time. It, like most blogs, got some degree of attention. And then, of course, over the ensuing days, that attention waned and people went on to read other things. But this particular blog ended up being resurrected about a year later, a year after it had originally received its initial attention. I had never had an essay or a blog be resurrected in this way, and it was apparently resurrected because somebody saw it a year later for the first time and posted a link to it on Facebook. So because of that link and because of that second renewed popularity of this particular essay on the Adam-God theory, it came to the attention of none other than Bill Reel, and Bill Reel had never done an episode on Mormon discussions about the Adam God theory. It is something that he had long wanted to do, but he had never quite gotten around to it, and apparently had never found somebody with whom he felt it a good idea to have such a discussion. So he reached out to me, contacted me, asked me if I would be willing to do that. I said absolutely. We did a podcast on the Adam God theory on his Mormon discussions podcast. And that ended up being quite popular. Lots of people listened to that. Lots of people liked it. And so as a result, Bill Real reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in doing my own podcast. And I said, absolutely. I was chomping at the bit. I had been wanting to do that for several years, but simply never knew how. I did not know the technology. And Bill Real was kind enough to tell me exactly what I needed to get as far as a microphone, exactly what kind of software I needed to download. And then Bill Real was kind enough to take hours out of his time to tutor me in how to use the software. And then he was kind enough to allow me to put my podcast up on his website, the Mormon Discussions Podcast website, where this podcast continues to appear in two formats. One is under the Mormon Discussions Podcast website, and another is a separate section of the same website, which is devoted exclusively to the Radio Free Mormon episodes. That's RadioFreeMormon.org. So if you go to the Mormon Discussion podcast website, you can find all the episodes of Radio Free Mormon and you can find all the other episodes of Mormon Discussion, of Marriage on a Tightrope, and a number of other different podcasts that are put up by very, very interesting people about interesting subjects. And I encourage you to do so. If, however, you just want to find only the episodes of Radio Free Mormon, you can go to RadioFreeMormon.org and there only my episodes are listed. And once again, if you want to make a contribution to Radio Free Mormon, and I sincerely encourage you to do so, if you like what you're hearing here, if you appreciate the effort I'm putting into this, and if you appreciate the research I'm doing and the information I'm conveying, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now. Make a contribution. Make a monthly contribution. $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contribution, your donation keeps Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And the reason I say to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website to make that contribution is that contributions made there are slated specifically to this podcast. If, however, you want to make a contribution or a donation to another podcast that is featured on the Mormon Discussion Podcast website, go to their specific webpage and do so so that Bill Reel will know that when the contributions come in, what podcasts they are earmarked for. So tonight, I want to read to you or perform for you that first essay, that essay on the Adam-God theory that I wrote several years ago, the essay that I'm saying is the essay that started it all. And that's why I call tonight's podcast The Essay That Started It All. But first, I'd like to make a few announcements and a few comments before getting to that essay. Number one is that It is not lost on me, by the way, that at the opening of yesterday's podcast, I made the announcement that my podcasts were going too long. I was filling them with too much material. They were approaching and even exceeding an hour for each podcast. And what with my doing them every weekday, it was ending up taking way too much of my time during the day. And I talked about that at the beginning of yesterday's podcast. And I said that I was going to start having podcasts that were shorter than an hour. I would still try and have them be at least an hour, but no longer than 45 minutes. And it did not escape my notice, and it probably did not escape yours, that yesterday's podcast ended up being more than 45 minutes. Actually, it was another hour-long podcast. And then, oh wait, that wasn't at the beginning of yesterday's podcast. That was at the beginning of the podcast the day before yesterday, on Tuesday morning, because yesterday, on Wednesday, April 22nd, I once again did another hour-long podcast. So, obviously, I'm not very good at setting goals and keeping them. Today, I'm going to try and do that. Just a half-hour podcast no longer than 45 minutes. Okay, so that's the first announcement. We'll see how well I'm able to do that today. You know, when I was on my mission and in my early days growing up in the church, we heard a lot about setting goals. I don't know if we hear that as much today as I did back then, but I remember on the mission, it was all about setting goals and setting goals for how many lessons you were going to teach and setting goals for how many investigators you were going to have in your teaching pool and setting goals for how many people you were going to baptize. And it always struck me as odd that here I am setting goals, which impact another person's agency. In other words, how does my goal override a person's agency as to whether they want to be an investigator? How does me setting a goal as to how many people I want to baptize override somebody else's free agency as to whether they want to be baptized at all? But that was something that I was nevertheless assured it was still important for me to set goals. Now, none of those goals I set, even though I tried to keep them modest so that I had a chance of meeting them, I cannot remember a time when actually I met any of those goals. And I'm not sure that any of the other missionaries had any more success than I did at setting goals. But at one of these meetings, as a missionary in Japan, I remember somebody saying that you need to write your goals down. You don't just have your goals in your head. You have to write them down because the saying was that an unwritten goal is only a wish. Well, I thought about that for about three seconds and then I realized that the flip side of that coin is that if you write it down, then what you've taken is you've taken a wish and written it down on paper. So it occurred to me that looking at that saying The other way would be to say that a goal is just a written wish. Well, whether that's true or not, I did not write down my goal of having podcasts be shorter and last no more than 45 minutes, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe it's because I didn't write it down that I wasn't able to keep to that goal. I'm going to try and keep to that goal today because I actually have a number of other things that I have to do here in my other life. One of my other lives away from being Radio Free Mormon, I have a number of things at the office I have to take care of. I have a hearing this morning. I have some legal research I have to do. I've got a few letters I have to write, emails to respond to. You get the idea. As much as I would like to be able to spend my entire days podcasting and recording and editing and producing and putting them up, I do have other people who are depending upon me to represent them with legal matters of one kind or another. And now that gets to another question that I'm hearing more and more because as I am now in my fifth week of producing daily podcasts every weekday, of radio free mormon i am more and more hearing the question well aren't you afraid that you're going to run out of things to talk about well i'm not worried about it actually what i'm worried about <laughs> is quite the opposite i'm worried about restricting what i talk about so i don't go too long every day it's just like i told you about i have too much information to talk about right now so no if you're wondering about that i am not worried about running out of things to say In fact, let me tell you a couple of things that are good about this daily podcasting that I've been engaged in now for a little over a month. The negative side is that it takes an awful lot of effort and I've talked to you about that, you don't need to hear that again. But the positive side is a couple of things. First off, during the last several years that I've been podcasting, I come up with a number of ideas on my own or I hear them from others or we develop them during conversation. Anyway, I have a lot of ideas about Mormonism, but they're kind of individual separate ideas, and if I talked about them it would only be maybe three minutes or five minutes long. It wouldn't be enough for an entire podcast. And so over the last three years, I have not generally gone into those ideas. Because what I have done with each of my podcasts prior to the coronavirus, when I was producing them every three weeks and then every two weeks, and then I got down to where I was producing them every week. But nevertheless, what I would try and do is I would try and create a podcast that was all dealing with one particular issue. And there would be all these different thoughts that I would have, but the thoughts that I would share had to be related to the issue I was discussing on a given podcast. And so, I would say the majority of ideas that I've had didn't fit into that category and therefore I never had the opportunity or I never made the opportunity To talk with you about those. In fact, I sort of remember that there was one juicy bit of an idea that I had, but it didn't fit into any podcast. And so it lay dormant for weeks and months. And then finally, an issue arose. Something happened that I was going to do a podcast about. And I said, Oh, thank goodness, I can actually take that piece that's been over here waiting forever and I can work it into this podcast. I remember that happening on at least one occasion. But now that I'm doing them every day, I don't feel compelled to create a podcast that all deals with one issue. And therefore, while I'm doing these daily podcasts, I feel the freedom to be able to talk about random things. They don't all have to fit into one complete whole. I can talk about one idea for a few minutes. I can talk about another idea for a few minutes. And I can talk about something else for the rest of the podcast. It is not as seamless a production and not as polished a production as I'm used to presenting. So there's that downside. But on the plus side, I'm able to talk to you about a lot of things that I wouldn't otherwise be talking to you about. And I hope that it's of some interest to you and it's not too distracting to you to jump from one subject to another subject in the course of the same podcast. Another thing that is going on and has been going on for the last several years is I will typically find a subject that interests me. Something will come up in Mormonism or something will come up in the discussion I'm having with Bill Reel or somebody and I will get interested in a certain subject and I will do a bunch of research on that subject in preparation for doing a podcast on that subject and then before I actually get to recording the podcast, something else comes up because like uh, Clinton had his bimbo eruptions. Every now and again, while I'm doing these podcasts, sometimes there's a Mormon eruption and there's something else that happens that flares up on the surface of the sun and it takes my attention away. And all of a sudden, I'm off and running and doing a podcast about something else with the result that I never get back to or have never gotten back to all this other research that I've done on a variety of subjects for podcasts that ended up never getting recorded. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. First off, back when we had the B1 celebration back in June of 2018. And that B1 celebration was, of course, to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the church lifting the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. Now, of course, it was an interesting thing to have a church celebrate how great it is. Because 40 years before that, they stopped being racist. But nevertheless, that was the decision that was made. And of course, in the context of that address, that B1 celebration, Elder Oaks gave the keynote address. And there was an awful lot to say about that address that he gave. And as a result of that address, I thought that the B1 in B1 celebration should not be spelled capital B-E, capital O-N-E, B1. I thought it should probably be spelled B, capital B, the letter B, dash And the number one b1 like a b1 bomber because that was the effect i thought that elder oaks talk had at the b1 celebration it was like a b1 bomber flying way overhead and dropping its payload on the attendees at the conference center but what i had done with that i had intended to do podcast about Elder Oaks Address at the B1 Celebration. I took his script from the church website. I copied and pasted it into a Word document and then I went through it and I started making parenthetical comments in the body of his talk. And the unusual thing about that, at least for me, is that those comments were not me commenting on what it was he was saying. Instead, I was framing them in terms of Elder Oaks himself commenting on what it was he was saying. So it wasn't Elder Oaks talking and then me saying this is what I think about what he said, it's Elder Oaks talking and then hopefully me in my best or worst Elder Oaks impression commenting on what it is that Elder Oaks said as if I were Elder Oaks himself. And I had talked with a friend about this on the phone and I was riffing on what it was that Elder Oaks said and this other person was absolutely laughing their guts out and I thought, I got to do this, this is going to be great, but then something happened. I don't know what it was, but something else happened and I went off on another rabbit trail and I did a podcast about something else and then that podcast led to another podcast and the material and the research and the work I did on Elder Oaks Talk at the B1 conference got left in the dust. It's still present in a file on my computer, but I just never had the time to get around to doing it. Hopefully, I'll be able to get around to doing it here in the coming days and weeks. Another example of something where I did a bunch of research but never got to a podcast, but hopefully now I'll have the chance to, was an incident involving a mission president down in Florida, I think. It, no, was it in Florida? No, it wasn't Florida. I bet it was down in um, Puerto Rico. Right, this was a mission president named Philander Smart the Third. Seriously, his name is Philander Smart. Philander Knox Smart with two Ts, the third, who was a mission president down in Puerto Rico. And in April of 2018, this is actually two years ago that this happened and two years ago that the story broke and two years ago that I did this research. So this has been languishing now for two years without me ever having done a podcast on it. But the story broke that in 2014, four years earlier, this particular individual, Philander Smart, who was an attorney from Alabama, he was called to serve as the president, the mission president of the Puerto Rico San Juan mission. And he was removed from his post in early 2000. And fourteen, and the basic reason that he was removed from his post was because he was getting a little too chummy with the sister missionaries That he was supervising in his mission and the church had managed to do a very good job Of putting the lid on this as I recall what happened the way this ended up coming to the attention of church authorities in 2014 was that one of the sister missionaries feeling very uncomfortable about what was going on ended up calling home She either talked to her family or talked to a church leader in her stake made a report That report went up to Salt Lake and Salt Lake took very quick action and went out and got this mission president, Philander Smart, and released him early from being the mission president in the Puerto Rico-San Juan mission. He was sent home. The story was put out there to the other missionaries that the reason he was released from being mission president was not because of any misconduct on his part, but rather it was because of medical issues that his wife was experiencing, which of course was just a cover story but i did a good deal of research on that which included going to the blogs of some of the sister missionaries and seeing what they were saying on their blogs that they wrote during the time that Philander Smart was their president. And also looking at some of the things that the church did afterward in order to deal with the situation and in order to put a lid on this story getting out. And they were successful for four years. Remember, he was released in 2014. The story didn't break until four years later in 2018. And frankly, it was probably a good thing that this whole Joseph Bishop thing was blowing up right then because I think that gave a lot of cover for Philander Smart and the story that broke relating to His situation, because it didn't get nearly the traction or the press it would otherwise have, I'm sure, if the Joseph Bishop story were not occupying the headlines. And so at some point here, I want to do a podcast covering that research that I did about Philander Smart. And there are also a number of things that I have written prior to starting this podcast or even during this podcast that I also want to share with you. Let me give you an example of one of these. I don't know if you'll be interested in this, but I did want to say that on a couple of occasions I've mentioned the story about how I got back from my mission. I was very into apologetics. And one of the things that launched me really into apologetics was after I got back from my mission and a dear friend who was investigating the church had been given a small booklet of anti-Mormon literature. It was called Answering Mormons' Questions. It had 33 questions that basically were stereotypical questions that they put into the mouth of a Mormon. In other words, questions that a Mormon might ask of a Christian and then the biblical responses that the Christian could give in order to defuse and dismantle the question that was raised by the Mormon. That was the format of the book, and it wasn't a very long book. It was paperback. It may have had around 50 pages or so. And anyway, I was able to get a copy of that book, and what I did was I spent many, many hours and many, many weeks and even months researching the questions that this book raised about Mormonism. And I did original research on this issue. This was the point where in the early 1980s I segued from just reading books about Mormon apologetics to actually doing my own research on the subject. Not just reading what other people had to say but finding out for myself what it was that the documents themselves had to say. Whether it was from the Journal of Discourses or the Scriptures or the Book of Commandments or some other source. And so I ended up writing a manuscript which was a response To this book. And I mentioned this, as I say, in a couple of episodes before. I think I mentioned it in my interview with John DeLynn as well. And I lamented then the fact that I had completely lost this. This was a long time ago. I mean, it's almost what, 40 years ago now that I wrote this. And it had long since been lost. I had no idea where it was or even if it existed at this point. Well, since that time, I'm happy to tell you that I was rummaging around at a bunch of old stuff. And guess what? I found it. I found a hard copy of my manuscript and at some point I would like to read at least some chapters of that manuscript to you. I know there's not a lot of you who like my apologetic stuff but I think that I was probably sassy enough in this that it might be interesting to find out what it was I was saying and how it was I was dealing, even in written form, with anti-Mormon arguments at that early date. That will not be on the front burner, you'll be glad to know. I wanna get to these other things before I get to that. You will also notice that I haven't put up in quite a while any more of my institute lectures on defending the faith. Now, I really want to get those up. There are only three left. I've already put up the first nine of the 12. There are only three left, 10, 11, and 12, that need to be put up, but I would like to have a complete set of those lectures, if for nothing else, than for history's sake. I think that some people can benefit from them. I can benefit from listening to them myself, but I think that the main benefit is is that people can understand where I was at in the 1980s. The positions that I held and the research that I had done at the peak and actually toward the end of my apologetic career in 1989 when I gave that institute class. And some listeners have commented to me that they don't like it. They really aren't interested in what I had to say back then and I get that, believe me, I get that. On the other hand, other listeners have said, you know, this sort of adds to your credibility because you're not just saying that you used to be an apologist. You're demonstrating how much of an apologist you really used to be, that you really knew this stuff inside and out. And frankly, yeah, I did. I spent a lot of time studying it. I spent 10 years studying it. And indeed, to the point where I was able to create a curriculum and present a 12-class series for Institute at the University of Texas at Austin, which of course had to be approved and sanctioned by the institute director, which it was. Otherwise, it never would have been given. It never would have been recorded. I wouldn't be able to present it to you now, three decades later. So I do want to get those out as well. And I hope that you'll forgive me for that, those of you who don't really like them. And those of you who do, well, you've got something to look forward to. But going back to the things that I've written, there are a number of things that I have written. Some of them have been published. A lot of them have not been published. And one of the big things that I wrote early on that has never been published was a research paper that I did dealing with the Adam God theory. I was able to get into the documents, into the original sources, and I was able to discover a lot of important things about the Adam-God theory, things that the apologetic books on the subject that I had read got completely wrong. And so let me go now to that essay that I wrote many years ago, and let me perform that essay for you now. Once again, this is the essay that started it all. Yes, it was first published on April fourteenth, two 2015, which makes sense because it was a year after that that it regained its renewed attention. That would have been around April of 2016. It came to Bill Reel's attention. And we did our episode on the Adam God Theory back around August, I think it was, of 2016. Here's how this essay goes. Good evening. Tonight's episode features a walk. Through the Mormon history department. I'm trying to do this as if I'm Alfred Hitchcock. Some of you may remember that Alfred Hitchcock used to have a TV show. It was called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And at the beginning of every TV show, he would appear on screen and he would introduce the episode with some of his wry English dark humor. And that's what I was trying to channel as I wrote this particular essay. Good evening. That's supposed to be Alfred Hitchcock saying good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Tonight's episode features a walk through the Mormon history department. In a corner of the department is a closet crammed with skeletons. One of the largest and most shiver-inducing of these is the Adam-God skeleton. During this program, see how I'm doing this? Like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I love it. During this program, we will open the closet door and allow this creaky specimen out for a bit to stretch his legs and get some fresh air. But have no fear. We will keep him under close watch during the entirety of these proceedings. He will not be allowed to escape and run free over meadow and lawn, wreaking terror and havoc on unsuspecting testimonies <laughs> this is written in 2015 even five years later I'm still making myself laugh during the course of his herky-jerky perambulation we will have the opportunity to take his measure and consider how it is that he got stuck in the closet in the first place and why it is that hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year when he bestrode the Mormon world like a colossus, which is a novel combination in one sentence of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem Paul Revere's Ride, together with Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Once again, and why it is that hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year, that's Paul Revere, when he bestrode the Mormon world like a colossus. That's Julius Caesar. Wow, this is good stuff. But first, a word from our sponsor. Oh, remember, remember how Alfred Hitchcock would always say, but first a word from our sponsor and how he would sometimes slip in something derogatory about the sponsor before he broke for a commercial. Audiences love that. But first, a word from our sponsor. The next section is titled, did the Adam-God doctrine ever really exist? The answer to this question is an unqualified yes. Though it would be impossible to discover this, through the perusal of modern LDS-correlated curricula, the Adam-God Doctrine was at one time a significant and frequently repeated teaching of Mormonism. Brigham Young first publicly announced the Adam-God Doctrine in 1852 and repeated it many times and in many venues for the next 25 years of his life. Shortly before he died in 1877, Brigham Young had the Adam-God Doctrine incorporated into the Temple Endowment, where it was taught in the lecture at the veil vale at the St. George Temple. It is believed by some to have remained a feature of the LDS Temple Endowment until around 1904 when it was quietly removed. If so, the Adam-God doctrine was taught in the LDS Church, not only by its highest authority, i.e. Brigham Young, but also in its holiest precincts, for half a century. And that would be the 25 years that Brigham Young taught it while he was alive and the 25 years or so that it remained in the endowment ceremony at the St. George Temple as part of the lecture at the veil. The next section asks the question, what is the Adam God doctrine? Whole books have been written about this subject, but fortunately for us, the lecture at the veil of the St. George Temple contains a brief and concise statement of the subject, which will serve our purpose nicely so here i quote from the lecture at the veil as it was given at the saint george temple and my recollection is that this is found in the book of the recorder at the saint george temple at the time who wrote it down in a record book here it is once again from the lecture at the veil of the saint george temple adam was an immortal being when he came on this earth he had lived on an earth similar to ours he had received the priesthood and the keys thereof and had been faithful in all things, and gained his resurrection and his exaltation, and was crowned with glory, immortality, and eternal lives, and was numbered with the gods, for such he became through his faithfulness, and had begotten all the spirit that was to come to this earth. So in other words, this is the lecture at the veil from the St. George Temple, teaching the Adam-God doctrine that Adam was a God before he came to this earth and that he begot all the spirits that came to this earth, including you and including me. And Eve, our common mother, who is the mother of all living, bore those spirits in the celestial world. And when this earth was organized by Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, a reference, of course, to what happens in the endowment ceremony, and when this earth was organized by Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, who is Adam, Michael is Adam, right, our common father, adam and eve had the privilege to continue the work of progression consequently came to this earth and commenced the great work of forming tabernacles for those spirits to dwell in so in other words adam and eve were gods prior to the creation of this earth they had attained exaltation from another world they produced all the spirits that are to be born in this world prior to coming down to this earth as adam and eve and being introduced into the garden and then they were cast out of the garden and were able to commence the process of creating physical bodies for all of their spirit children. This is the Adam God theory. The lecture at the veil also deals with the role of Jesus Christ in this scenario. How does Jesus Christ fit into the Adam God theory? Well, here it is. Father Adam's oldest son, Jesus the Savior. So, Father Adam's oldest son is Jesus the Savior in the Spirit, right? Father Adam's oldest son, Jesus the Savior, who is the heir of the family, is Father Adam's first begotten in the Spirit world, who, according to the flesh, is the only begotten as it is written. So, in the Adam-God theory, that's where Jesus fits. Jesus is not necessarily Jehovah in the Adam God theory and because Jehovah is obviously over Michael, Michael is Adam, so therefore Jehovah would be over Adam. Jesus is under Adam. Jesus is seen as being Adam's firstborn spirit child in the pre-mortal existence the same way that we typically see today Jesus as being God's firstborn spirit child or Elohim's firstborn spirit child in the pre-mortal existence. It's the same idea, it's just applied to Adam as God instead of Elohim as being God in that scenario. So that's the quote from the lecture at the veil, which once again was performed at the St. George Temple for approximately 25 years from 1877 until around 1904 when it was quietly removed. And once again, this simply synopsizes what it is that Brigham Young had taught on many different occasions for 25 years prior to his death in 1877. So, now we know that it was taught, absolutely, unqualifiedly, yes, it was taught, but it's not taught anymore. And so now the church does not talk about the fact that it used to be taught. Instead, the church studiously avoids mentioning the subject, and when it is forced to mention the subject, it tends to deny the fact that it was ever taught. In other words, there's a cover-up. So, the next section is called, Why a Cover-Up? The teaching of the LDS church in this regard began to take a different tack in the early 20th century. This different tack would lead to the current version taught throughout the church, which is presumably familiar to everybody who reads this, or for everybody who's listening to this now since I'm recording it on a podcast. For any not-in-the-know, the the current version posits Adam as simply one of Heavenly Father's spirit children, the same as you and I and the rest of us. As can be plainly seen, the current version is quite different from the Adam-God doctrine. Due to this disparity, The LDS Church began taking steps to scrub the record of the fact Brigham Young taught something else entirely. It was presumably thought unwise to have one mouthpiece of the Lord saying something completely different from a later mouthpiece of the Lord, and on a subject as fundamental to the religion as the identity of Heavenly Father. The next section is called The Cover-Up Commences. The first step was to quit teaching the Adam-God doctrine, and church leaders did that. As mentioned above, the problematic lecture at the Veil was removed from the Temple Endowment in St. George probably around 1904. But more had to be done. You see, Brigham Young left a massive footprint of documented expressions of this teaching, many of which had already been captured and preserved in the Journal of Discourses. Now, I trust that everybody listening to this knows what the Journal of Discourses is. It is a multi-volume set. I think it's either 24 or 26 volumes of discourses that were given, primarily in general conference, that were recorded, that were published, and that many Latter-day Saint homes, when I joined the church, actually had a complete set of on their bookshelves. Today, these are not so popular, but if you want, You can actually access all of them, or any one of them in particular, simply by using the internet. But as I say, Brigham Young mentioned this on a number of occasions in his sermons. Those sermons were transcribed, they were published, they were in the Journal of Discourses, and even though that's a bunch of volumes, and big volumes at that, to go through to find them, it can be done. So they were preserved. There was a massive footprint there left by Brigham Young on the Adam-God Doctrine. So, to remedy this, another collection of Brigham Young's teachings was compiled, this one devoid of any reference to Adam God. John A. Widsoe was put in charge of this project, which was published in 1925 as the one-volume Discourses of Brigham Young. And by the way, when I joined the church and I was getting ready to go on my mission, there was called a missionary library, which was a set of 10 paperback books. It was a box set, and they had a number of important works that were written by church leaders one was the teachings of the prophet joseph smith one was a marvelous work and a wonder by LeGrand richards three of the volumes were the doctrines of salvation by joseph healing smith one was gospel doctrine by joseph f smith one was faith precedes the miracle by spencer kimball and one of those was the discourses of brigham young it was this one volume collection of sayings by brigham young which once again was compiled by john a widso who of course was an apostle in the lds church he was one of its scholars In the early 20th century and it was published in 1925. So once again this volume is called Discourses of Brigham Young. It's very clear from looking at it that one of the goals of doing this was not just to take all of Brigham Young's teachings and make it accessible in a one-volume topically organized format but also to take out any references to his having taught the Adam God theory. Now with this one volume Brigham Young's teachings could be researched topically by Latter-day Saints with no worries they would learn anything disconcerting about Adam. We will return to the discourses of Brigham Young later. But right now, I want to fast forward to the 1970s when several general authorities saw fit to scout the Adam-God doctrine and denigrate any who talked about it or believed it. And by the way, when I'm using the word scout there, I'm using it in its less familiar sense of to reject a proposal or idea with scorn. I actually had to look that up to make sure I was using it correctly. So once again, talking about fast-forwarding to the 1970s, when several general authorities saw fit to scout the Adam-God doctrine and denigrate any who talked about it or believed it. First off, Vaughn J. Featherstone. And I may have to try and find the audio clips for this. In April conference of 1975, Elder Featherstone employed a shaming tactic toward anyone who even talked about Adam-God. And here's what he said. Well, he took
1: that and was kind enough to do it. Another case uh, of those who uh, talk about the Adam-God theory, I guess when they talk about all these different theories and things in the church that uh, they don't have time to study faith and repentance. Uh, maybe we ought to get back to the basics. And when they understand everything about faith, then move on to the next uh, principle.
0: That's a quote from Vaughn Featherstone, April Conference, 1975. So anybody who talks about this teaching, the Adam-God teaching, of the second president of the LDS church obviously needs to spend more time studying faith and repentance, presumably because such talk demonstrates a lack of the former, i.e. faith, and a need for the latter, i.e. repentance. Next is Spencer W. Kimball. In October General Conference of 1976, so this is the following year, President Kimball gave a carefully worded denial that Brigham Young ever taught the Adam-God doctrine and officially branded it as false doctrine. Here's the quote from President Kimball.
1: Another matter. We hope that you who teach in the various organizations, whether in the campuses or in our chapels, will always teach the orthodox truth. We warn you against the dissemination of doctrines which are not according to the scriptures and which are alleged to have been taught by some of the general authorities of a past generation such, for instance, as the Adam-God theory. We denounce that theory and hope that everyone will be cautioned against this and other kinds of false doctrine.
0: Notable here is President Kimball's unwillingness to come right out and say that Brigham Young never taught the Adam-God doctrine, though he does label it as false. Instead, the phrase, alleged to have been taught, is used in order to give the implication that such doctrine was never taught by past General Authorities, without actually saying so. This is sometimes referred to as having one's cake and eating it too. The next General Authority is Marky Peterson. In October General Conference of 1980, Elder Marky Peterson got into the act by giving his one-word opinion of the Adam-God doctrine, Ridiculous.
1: Then was Adam our God, or did God become Adam?
0: Ridiculous! But at least Elder Peterson did try to engage the argument, if only on a minor point. The thrust of his position was that if Adam is God, and Adam had numerous sons, such as Cain, Abel, and Seth, how could Jesus be considered God's only begotten son?
1: Christ is the Lord. He alone is our Savior. Adam was the Savior's progenitor, only in the same sense in which he is the ancestor of us all. God had only one begotten Son in the flesh. But Adam had many, including Cain and Abel and Seth. He lived for nearly a thousand years. He could have had hundreds of children in that time. Then how could it be said by anyone that he had an only begotten Son in the flesh? How could all of his other children be accounted for? Were they not all begotten in the flesh? Were Cain and Abel and Seth and their brothers and sisters all orphans? Was any child ever begotten without a father? Adam was their father, and he had many sons. In no way whatever does he qualify as a father who had only one son in the flesh. Yet God, our Eternal Father, had only one son in the flesh— who was Jesus Christ. Then was Adam our God, or did God become Adam? Ridiculous.
0: It is somewhat less than a theological tour de force, but even so, at no time does Elder Peterson reveal that his argument is more with Brigham Young than with fringe Mormons. He closes with this admonition.
1: If you have been assailed by advocates of erroneous doctrines, counsel with your priesthood leaders. They will not lead you astray, but will direct you into paths of truth and salvation.
0: And those of you who have been to the temple can recognize the allusions to language in the temple endowment there. Here, Elder Peterson indirectly calls Brigham Young a false teacher and an advocate of erroneous doctrines. Hardly flattering, to say the least. But this type of apostolic defamation of a past prophet was only an echo of what had happened Earlier that summer, the summer of 1980, and now we get to Bruce R. McConkie. On June 1st, 1980, Elder McConkie gave his seven deadly heresy speech at BYU. Heresy number six was Adam God. When I'm talking about the seven deadly heresies, I love to introduce them like Casey Kasem doing his countdown. And coming in at number six, Adam God. (laughs) That's got to be the worst Casey Kasem impression in the world. Okay, anyway, this is Bruce R. McConkie. Heresy six. There are those who believe, or say they believe, that Adam
1: is our father and our God, that he is the father of our spirits and our bodies, and that he is the one we worship. The devil keeps this heresy alive as a means of obtaining converts to cultism. It is contrary to the whole plan of salvation set forth in the scriptures. Anyone who has read the book of Moses and anyone who has received the temple endowment and who yet believes the Adam God theory
0: does not deserve to be saved. Yep, that's Elder McConkie. Strong words. And Elder McConkie doubled down on his forcefulness when he said that anybody who even taught about Adam God would be damned. This is from the book Sermons and Writings of Brucer McConkie, page 337. Quote, You talk about teaching false doctrine and being damned. Here is a list of false doctrines that if anyone teaches, he will be damned. Note that, that if anyone teaches, he will be damned. And there is not one of these that I have ever known to be taught in the church. That's an interesting statement because actually, yeah, it had been taught in the church and yeah, he knew it. But he says, and there is not one of these that I have ever known to be taught in the church, but I am giving you the list for perspective because of what will follow. And then he lists a number of things on his list and he gets to teach the Adam-God theory. That's one of those on his list. Teach the Adam-God theory. That does apply in the church. Teach that we should practice plural marriage today. Now, any of these are doctrines that damn, once again from Sermons and Writings of Bruce McConkie, page 337. Is Elder McConkie really calling President Brigham Young a heretic? That he does not deserve to be saved? That because Brigham Young taught Adam God, he will be damned? But wait a second, Elder McConkie may not know that Brigham Young actually did teach about Adam God. Maybe ignorance is a defense here. After all, Elder McConkie does say, there is not one of these that I have ever known to be taught in the church. Maybe he just didn't study enough. He was doubtless busy with other things like church administration and damning people to hell. Only, such is not the case. Elder McConkie did in fact know full well that President Young taught Adam God. Elder McConkie revealed his knowledge in a letter he wrote to BYU professor Eugene England on February 19, 1981, condemning Eugene England for teaching certain things in a church venue. Here are the relevant excerpts from page 6 of the letter. Once again, these are Elder Bruce R. McConkie's own words in February of 1981, a year after he had given his seven deadly heresy speech at BYU. Yes, Bruce R. McConkie writes, yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits. Well, wait, wait a second. He's acknowledging the fact that Brigham Young did teach the Adam-God theory that Adam was the father of our spirits, but I thought he just said that he never knew of this to have been taught in the church. Apparently, what he's saying to the public is different from what he's writing in a letter that was supposed to be private and that unfortunately got leaked. Once again, back to this letter by Bruce R. McConkie. Yes, President Young did teach that Adam was the father of our spirits and all the related things that the cultists ascribe to him. This, however, is not true. He expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. Well, that's Bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. Bruce McConkie saying that Brigham Young, the president of the church, the second prophet in this dispensation, expressed views that are out of harmony with the gospel. He goes on, I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam and of knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam God theory. That's Bruce McConkie writing this. He knows all about it. And yet he's presenting to the public and to the Mormon church as if Brigham Young never taught the Adam-God theory, and as if you teach it or anybody who teaches it or even believes it is going to go straight to H-E double hockey sticks. Well, this is embarrassing. You mean Bruce McConkie said all these unflattering things about people who teach and believe Adam-God while knowing full well that Brigham Young taught and believed it? Apparently so. And, perhaps more disconcertingly, it appears Bruce R. McConkie avowed he had never known the Adam-God doctrine to have been taught in the Church in spite of the fact he did know the Adam-God doctrine to have been taught in the Church, and by no less than the second president and prophet of the Church. The next section is called Down the Rabbit Hole. I could stop here, firm in the assurance I had ably proven my point that the Adam-God doctrine was taught for an extended period of time during the last half of the 19th century, and that a systematic effort to cover up that fact has been perpetrated by the LDS Church. And I would stop here, except it goes much deeper. In fact, the smokescreen continues right up to the recent Priesthood Relief Society manual on the teachings of Brigham Young, produced by the LDS Church for the learning and edification of its members. But it seems there are some things about the teachings of Brigham Young, the LDS Church does not want its members to learn. And if you have gotten this far, five will get you ten, you know exactly what they are.
1: Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand.
0: In the interest of time, I will restrict myself to two examples. Time for the Skeletonic Constitutional. (laughs) The Skeletonic Constitutional is growing short, and our decomposed comrade has to be getting back into the closet pretty soon. Next section, what does the new manual say Brigham Young taught about Adam? Hmm. In the single instance where the manual quotes Brigham Young's views relating to Adam, we have the following. So this is from the relatively recent church manual published for study by Priesthood and Relief Society dealing with the teachings of the presidents of the church and focusing on the teachings of Brigham Young. Under the subject Adam, we have the following. God was once known on the earth among his children as we know one another. Adam was as conversant with his father who placed him upon this earth as we are conversant with our earthly parents. The father frequently came to visit his son Adam and talked and walked with him, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him, and the things that pertain to God and to heaven were as familiar among mankind in the first ages of their existence on the earth as our gardens are to our wives and children, or as the road to the western ocean is to the experienced traveler." And that quote, by the way, is from chapter 14 in that manual, Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Brigham Young. And the citation for that quote cites to Discourses of Brigham Young. Remember, that's the volume that was collected and edited by John A. Whitso in 1925, page 104. So the new manual that the Church produces quotes Brigham Young about Adam and gives as its citation, not the Journal of Discourses where it appeared originally, but instead The Discourses of Brigham Young, or as it's abbreviated there, DBY, page 104. I go on. It was a gutsy move on the part of the editors to include this quote because it is difficult to find anything from Brigham Young on the subject of Adam without at least some reference to the Adam-God doctrine close at hand. That's how much he talked about it. And this quote, as it turns out, is no different. The next section is titled, I, There's the Rub. You will note I have bolded the word him in the above quote, from the manual. That is because the word him does not occur in the original address by Brigham Young. Let me go back to that quote and read that to you and emphasize the word him. This is the line. The father frequently came to visit his son Adam and talked and walked with him, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him. That's the hymn, that what I'm talking about. That word him. And by the way, before I get to this hymn, and its usage in this quote, let me just observe in passing that this quote, as it appears in the new manual from Brigham Young, would appear to be completely consistent and uncontroversial with everything that's taught in the church today about Adam's relationship to God. But that's where, if we go back to the original sermons in the Journal of Discourses, we find out that they've been monkeying with the quotes, and that more specifically, John A. Widtsoe monkeyed with the quotes from the Journal of Discourses when he was quoting them and selecting them and editing them for inclusion in his one-volume book, The Discourses of Brigham Young, from which the new manual quotes. Okay, so there's three steps there. The original sermons are in the Journal of Discourses. John A. Widtsoe, in 1925, selects and edits sermons of Brigham Young from the Journal of Discourses, puts them in a one-volume book called the Discourses of Brigham Young, and now the church produces a new manual for study in the church, the teachings of the presidents of the church, and in it there's a bunch of quotes from Brigham Young. That's what the whole thing is basically, is quotes from Brigham Young on different subjects. But instead of going back to the original Journal of Discourses to take those quotes, they go to the one-volume edited version from 1925, John A. witso Discourses of Brigham Young, to take those quotes from Brigham Young. So back to this word, him. In the quote in the manual, which is from Discourses of Brigham Young, it is written that the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him. Okay, so remember that him word. You will note I have bolded the word him in the above quote from the manual. This is because the word him does not occur in the original address by Brigham Young. They actually changed the word. In fact, the word him is put there to replace not just one word, but an entire clause in the sentence. And the deleted clause implicates The Adam God Doctrine, which is, of course, the reason it was taken out in the first place. Here is the same quote from the Journal of Discourses. By the way, it's volume 9, page 148, in its original form. I have taken the liberty of bolding the deleted phrase. So, whereas it says in the Discourses of Brigham Young and in the New Church Manual that the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him, what was actually originally said was the following clause The children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather and their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. So, it doesn't say him referencing God, it says their grandfather referencing God. So how is it that the children of Adam refer to God as their grandfather? Well, that is the part that implicates the Adam-God theory. So the question has to be, why was this entire phrase deleted and just the one word him put in its place. By the way, with no acknowledgment or recognition or notice to the reader that this has happened. Why was this phrase deleted? Because it necessarily implicates the Adam-God doctrine. How so? It will be recalled that Brigham Young taught that God was the father, both body and spirit, of Adam, and that Adam then became father, both body and spirit, of all those who live on the earth. Hence, God was Adam's father. That much fits with current teaching. But only in the Adam-God doctrine can Adam's children refer to God as their grandfather. And their children refer to God as their great-grandfather. You see, under the contemporary teaching of the Church, Adam would refer to God as his father, but his children would also refer to God as their father and the grandchildren, would refer to God as their father, just the same as we today refer to God as our father. The relationship is the same between all the people who've ever been on this earth and God. He is our father. We are his children. But it is only within the Adam-God theory that not only would Adam call God his father, but his children would call God their grandfather. You see what I'm getting at? This is why this entire phrase was deleted from the sermon and replaced with the word him. So once again, the line from the manual as it now reads, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with him, meaning God, but what was there originally and what Brigham Young originally taught was, and the children of Adam were more or less acquainted with their grandfather, and their children were more or less acquainted with their great-grandfather. It is obvious this phrase had to go. By deleting this phrase, Brigham Young could be made to appear as if he taught current correlated doctrine regarding God and Adam. But it wasn't the editors of the manual that did the original deletion. That honor goes to John A. Widsoe, who edited the 1925 volume Discourses of Brigham Young. I told you I would get back to it. Widsoe used the sermon in the Journal of Discourses as his source, but he edited out the offending phrase, leaving no trace of his skullduggery. As I mentioned, one of the primary purposes for the new collection of Brigham Young's teachings appears to have been scrubbing the record of any Adam-God material. And the editing of this particular quote is Exhibit A. But to Widso's credit, at least he scrupulously provided citations to the Journal of Discourses from which he obtained the quotation, and that was Volume 9, page 148. This allowed anyone sufficiently curious And with access to the Journal of Discourses, by the way, to go back and check his work and discover the deletion. But this doctored quote came to have a life of its own. Why? Because it became valuable as an apparent instance of Brigham Young's teaching the current doctrine of Adam's relation to God. The next section is titled Prevarications to Gospel Questions. That's a play on Joseph Fielding Smith's. Answers to Gospel Questions, I call it prevarications to Gospel Questions. As such, it made a guest appearance, this quote in its doctored form, as such it made a guest appearance in Joseph Fielding Smith's Answers to Gospel Questions, Volume 5, which was published in 1966. There, Joseph Fielding Smith responded to a question regarding whether Brigham Young taught the Adam-God Doctrine and how that could be when it is plainly in contradiction to what Joseph Fielding Smith taught on the subject. Joseph Fielding Smith attempted to provide An alternate explanation to what Brigham Young said in his 1852 discourse, then rapidly, that was his original discourse introducing the subject of the Adam-God theory, then rapidly segued into another argument. The other argument was that Brigham Young could not possibly have believed the Adam-God doctrine because in other instances, he plainly taught the current Orthodox teaching. Here's what Joseph Fielding Smith wrote. Now, let me present one or two expressions in other discourses by Brigham Young. Of course, the critics never think of referring to these. That's what he writes before he introduces these statements. These statements which he thinks shows Brigham Young teaching the current Orthodox teaching about God and Adam. Now, guess what quote from Brigham Young is first used by Joseph Fielding Smith to establish his proposition? Bingo! It is the doctored quote from Discourses of Brigham Young. So here we have the strange spectacle of Joseph Fielding Smith using a quote from Brigham Young that originally taught the Adam-God doctrine, as proof that Brigham Young never taught the Adam-God doctrine. Of course, the critics would never think of referring to this. And it is the same doctored quote that makes its way into the most recent church manual that we've been talking about earlier. Now it is true that the manual cites to DBY or Discourses of Brigham Young for the quote. And it is true that the quote was already doctored when it appeared in Discourses of Brigham Young. But, come on. Am I really expected to believe that the historians that compiled the Brigham Young quotes for the manual didn't know everything about it I have revealed here? I mean, I am no historian, and it took me less than half an hour to track these references down and find out this information. No, I feel confident the Adam-God cover-up proceeds apace to the present day. I mean, I was born at night, but not last night. One more example from the manual should cement the case. (laughs) This section is titled, How to Completely Misrepresent a Prophet. We find this quote regarding Father in Heaven in the Brigham Young Manual. This is from Chapter 4 of the Manual, Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Brigham Young. And here's the quote, Our Father in Heaven begat all the spirits that ever were or ever will be upon this earth, and they were born spirits in the eternal world. Then the Lord, by His power and wisdom, organized the mortal tabernacle of man, we were made first spiritual and afterwards temporal." That's the quote from Brigham Young. There's nothing to see here, folks, is there? This is standard, current, correlated Mormon doctrine. And the citation is given in the manual to DBY, once again that stands for, it after me, Discourses of Brigham Young, page 24. So as I say, nothing unusual here, all standard, current, LDS doctrine. But there's a catch. And it's almost too incredible to believe. In an act of unmitigated chutzpah, The church carved this quote out of the very middle of the most famous pronouncement Brigham Young ever gave of the Adam-God doctrine. It is from the 1852 sermon where Brigham Young first proclaimed the doctrine publicly. Here is the very next sentence from that sermon. After the portion quoted in the manual. Now, once again, here's the quote from the manual. Our Father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were, wherever will be upon this earth. And they were born spirits in the eternal world. Then the Lord, by his power and wisdom, organized the mortal tabernacle of man. We were made first spiritual and afterwards temporal. That's the quote in the manual going on from the sermon in Journal of Discourses. Here's what it says. Now hear it, O inhabitants of the earth, Jew and Gentile, saint and sinner, exclamation point. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. He helped to make and organize this world. He is Michael, the archangel, the ancient of days, about whom holy men have written and spoken. He is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do. I told you this was the most famous expression that Brigham Young ever made about the Adam God theory. It is the most well-known, and it comes from the very, very first time he announced it publicly in 1852. And what happens is, they take a section immediately before this and publish it in the new manual in order to try and make it look like, what? Like he didn't teach the Adam God theory, when you couldn't possibly know that this isn't part of the Adam-God theory because this other section I've been reading is immediately after this quote that was taken for the manual. Talk about taking something out of context. And after Brigham Young says he is our father, that's Adam, by the way, he is our father and our God and the only God with whom we have to do, he concludes by saying every man upon the earth professing Christian or non-professing must hear it and will know it sooner or later. Well, not if the Mormon Church has anything to do about it, sorry to tell you that, Brigham. I go on. In completely decontextualizing the quote from its Adam-God moorings, the manual again follows the lead of Widso in Discourses of Brigham Young. This is exactly what he did in his 1925 one-volume work, Discourses of Brigham Young. But this is remarkable. In an attempt to demonstrate Brigham Young's orthodoxy, the manual lifts this one snippet from the most famous Adam-God discourse on record. And the manual makes no mention of the fact that when Brigham Young says that our father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were, that part that's quoted in the manual, when Brigham Young says that our father in heaven begat all the spirits that ever were upon this earth, he is talking about Adam. The next section is titled Damnation, Damnation, Who's Got the Damnation? We have seen that Elder McConkie taught not only that those who believe the Adam-God doctrine do not deserve to be saved, but that those who teach it will be damned. Yes, those are his words. I quoted them earlier. This type of language is matched only by Brigham Young on the other side of the coin, who taught that Mormons must be careful before making light of these doctrines or treat them with indifference, for they will prove their salvation or damnation. That's Brigham Young from Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, Discourse 8. This causes quite the conundrum. This is no light matter for Mormons. Getting this Adam-God thing right is infinitely important. Nothing less than our eternal salvation or damnation hangs in the balance. The contradiction could not be more stark. Little wonder, then, that the LDS Church has decided not just to maintain radio silence on the issue, but to do its level-headed best to expunge the Adam-God skeleton from current correlated materials. The next section is titled, Did Bruce R. McConkie throw Joseph Fielding Smith under the bus? It will be recalled that in his answers to gospel questions, Joseph Fielding Smith provided what can only be described as a lengthy denial that Brigham Young taught the Adam God doctrine. There he stated, I maintain that in this, President Brigham Young is consistent with the facts and with the teachings in the scriptures. And he also wrote, President Young's statement is perfectly consistent with that which has been revealed. and also, he wrote, President Brigham Young is in perfect accord with the teachings in the Bible. And yet, in his letter to Eugene England, again on page six of that letter, Bruce McConkie reveals the following regarding the sentiments of his father in law. Of course, Joseph Fielding Smith was Bruce McConkie's father in law. This is what he wrote there in the letter, Bruce McConkie. I think you can give me credit for having a knowledge of the quotations from Brigham Young relative to Adam, and of knowing what he taught under the subject that has become known as the Adam God Theory. And then he adds this. President Joseph Fielding Smith said that Brigham Young will have to make his own explanations on the points there involved. Now, this admission from Bruce R. McConkey McConkie about his father-in-law raises an interesting question. Why would Joseph Fielding Smith think Brigham Young would have to make his own explanations about the Adam-God doctrine if, as Joseph Fielding Smith maintained in answers to gospel questions, Brigham Young never taught the Adam-God doctrine in the first place? Something isn't adding up here. It appears Bruce R. McConkie was not alone in publicly proclaiming one thing while privately saying another on this issue. And that Elder McConkie may have inadvertently given his father-in-law a slight nudge from the top of a long flight of stairs. Conclusion Well, I fear we have worn out our welcome with the Church History Department. Security has been alerted to our presence. Two beefy and glaring guards are walking this way and our calcified friend must be put back into the closet before things get out of hand. I hope he has enjoyed his brief bout of freedom, though. In this short span, we have learned that our grisly chum was not always relegated to the closet. He was once clothed with flesh and sinew, the same as you and I, and for a period of some fifty years he strutted and fretted his hour upon the Mormon stage, and then was heard, No more. The story of his sequestration and subsequent cover up is now a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying something? All right, that's enough. Back into the closet with you. And no biting. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.